Welcome to the Living Force Podcast, a Utini Podcast Network production. Bonus episode, interview with Delilah S. Dawson. On this episode, Eric Eilerson chats with the author of the new novel, Star Wars Inquisitor, Rise of the Red Blade. And now, here is your host, Eric Eilerson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of the Living Force. I'm your host, Eric Eilerson, and joining me tonight is the author of so many things, such as The Perfect Weapon, Phasma, Galaxy's Edge Black Spire, The Violence, The Disney Mirrorverse, and so much more. It is Delilah Dawson. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Of course, uh, we are here actually as we record on the release day of your latest book, uh, Inquisitor Rise of the Red Blade. I'm sure Everyone listening, you have already gotten your copy. Some of you may have finished. I know we have folks that get the ebook at midnight and just go straight through. Um, but folks, even if you haven't, this will be a spoiler-free conversation. So feel free to go all the way through, even if you haven't read the book. But then, of course, go back um, in physical audio, whatever we do here. Um, but, uh, Delilah, before we get to the Star Wars, I want to just mention that you have been incredibly busy. Since we last celebrated your full-length Star Wars novel, Black Spire, that seems like a lifetime ago. That was before Already. COVID. I know, <laughs> so it was. Ago. It was a different world. But you have been, of course, super busy doing all kinds of great stuff. So I just want to ask, what have been some of your favorite projects to work on over the last few years? And how did those experiences kind of factor in your return to your mainline Star Wars galaxy? I mean, my, my current favorite project is whatever I'm working on at the moment. <laughs> Fair so um, got a lot of favorites, but yeah, I guess since Black Spire, we had The Violence, which is kind of my, <laughs> my big adult kind of thriller horror. No one really knows what shelf to put my book on, <laughs> right. but uh, that's, my, that's my big chonky boy with a knife on the front. Um, mm-hmm. I've written the Minecraft Mob Squad series for Del Rey, who's also the Star Wars publisher. So if you have a kid who's into Minecraft, um, they're kind of like, you know, the uh, Goonies Monster Squad level 80s kids crew uh, living through Love the it. Minecraft world. Um, awesome. You know, neurodivergent kids and bullied kids and uh, zombies mm-hmm. and weird stuff. So those were super fun. Um, written some comics, if you get into that. Um, yeah. I've written some middle grade horror books called Mine and Camp Scare. Uh, yeah. Know, take my childhood trauma and try to frighten other children with it for profit. As you must. As <laughs> you you must do, I think, required by. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I'm always, I have, you know, most years between two and four books. Uh, if I can get it. And then I guess 2020, I didn't have anything because I'd written so many comics. That was just a year of just comic vomiting, basically. But I'm, mm-hmm. I'm back on the books. I have four books out this year. Jeez, that's amazing. And I mean, and it's been so wild in the last few years to, to see your output. Because yeah, like you said, obviously, with COVID and the, and the everything about everything, like the creative outputs have been so all over the place. But what I've loved as following you over the last couple of years is that a lot of these past projects and your future ones like span, like you said, all these different mediums. You're doing novels, novellas, middle grade stories, comics, not even to mention, like you said, genres everywhere possible. So do you intentionally switch up the kind of projects that you write from time to time? Or is that just kind of how the chips fall? Yeah, I knew from very early on. Um, I wrote my first book at 31. Um, mm-hmm. It's when my, my writing career started. And it was it was a very bad book. The opening line was about diarrhea. <laughs> it was not... <laughs> It's not good. So if you're a, like a new writer in your first book, if your first line is better than having diarrhea in a Turkish toilet in Greece, like you beat me, you're fine. 
You're well on your way. Well done, everybody. Yeah. So as soon as I started querying that one, I started writing my second theory book because I have anxiety. And it turns out that if you're constantly thinking about how to torture other people, you're not lying in bed worrying about if your kids will stop breathing quite as much. So this is how I manage my anxiety. Sure. Um, so there's always a story in there pretty much. And I just, I get bored super easily. I have ADHD. Um, mm-hmm. And I've learned that rather than, you know, my, my first books came out and my, my editor, we had this talk where she's like, Hey, we have to talk about your brand. And I was like, no, <laughs> absolutely not. Like, no, don't. like, you know, are you just going to do all vampire romance or all kinds of vampires or all kinds of romance? And I was like, no, I'm going to do whatever I want. My next book is, you know, I, my third book I think was about rats that talked in the walls and it was a middle grade adventure. It, it didn't go anywhere, but like it was written. So yeah, I knew from the start, when I started querying agents, you need to represent adults and kids scary stuff, weird stuff, smoochy stuff, random stuff. So I get ideas and I get really excited about them. And and then I have to get them out of my head. Like when a song gets stuck in your head and then quite often I'll sign a contract that will require me to do certain things. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I kind of have to hold mental space when I'm like, okay, now is the time when you have to write the middle grade horror. I don't care if you're really excited about something else. This is what we're doing today. Yeah. I, I always love the idea that like, a lot of authors kind of write for the times in which they live and like, and that can be your own life. Like sometimes there is a story based on whatever you're going through as an, as a writer. Oh, it all works its way in. Set. You may think you're not writing a book about the snakes in your head, but you are definitely writing a book about the snakes in your head. Absolutely. That's right. Del- you heard it here. Everybody. The Delilah Dawson. There we go. You're exposing writers all over the world. We got you all caught in your lie. Thank you. We'll save this forever. You may not know. Uh, you may not know yet, but you will learn. <laughs> It's helpful to know. Yeah. Um, so, of course, in Red Blade, we, we got the, the famous, as of now, Inquisitors, which have kind of been <laughs> rising to fame a lot lately. Yep. Uh, thanks to, you know, Jedi Fallen Order, Obi-Wan Kenobi, the Emmy-nominated show. Thank you very much. Yep, um, yep. So, for you, aside from the aforementioned snakes in your head, of course, um, what makes this kind of the perfect time for us as a Star Wars community to get a full novel about these people? Well, I feel like everything they've given us, the thing about Star Wars is it's a very large world and it's kind of like Eddie Izzard with flags. Everyone is planting little flags to claim things for themselves. Wow, yes. But that often leaves the reader going, well, what about that island over there? And you're like, no, you can't have that. You can have Australia now, but you can't have Hawaii. And you go, well, but I want to know what's going on on Hawaii. (laughs) Yeah. The lovely people at Lucasfilm have realized that we're we're pretty hungry for Inquisitor lore um, Mm -hmm. after the chunks that we've seen. And so I guess they found this character in the Charles Sewell's Vader comics and realized mm-hmm. she might be a very good window into the Inquisitor world without giving away things that were already in situ in other media. Um, you know, I think mm-hmm. uh, the, the movies and TV, Floney and Favreau are always going to get the, the first, yep. first claim. And then, you know, the rest of us get to uh, put flags in whatever chunks we can. So we found yeah. this character that was kind of ripe for story in a time that was ripe for story and had a lot of leeway for showing her story without stepping on anybody else's feet. So I just got very lucky to get this flag to plant. Yeah, it's been so fascinating seeing that over the last few years as like Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett and or all these projects are coming out, which are great. But you're right. It, it is that moment of like that used to be kind of just the book space. It's like, what's the other movie stuff? You can kind of go wherever. And now, since obviously none of us in anywhere, none of, none of the publishers, none of the fans really know everything that's coming yeah. down the pipe. It's kind of that, uh, like you said, you got to find your place. You got to stick your flag and hope that, that no one else is going to pick it up. Well, and things happen. Like while you're writing a Star Wars book, you'll be writing it or be in a separate draft. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, you lost that thing on page 45. So come up with something new. And you're like 
wow. I lost that thing. <laughs> Like, and then you have that to ship do took a lot off. of thinking on your feet. Cause yeah, you do. You lose chunks. Wow. Yeah, I think it was um, a couple years ago. We spoke to Claudia Gray um, right after Into the Dark came out, and she had mentioned that she originally had a whole different like plot in it, and then they heard, "Oh, we're moving that to, to phase two or three. And yep. it, but the book still had to come out. So as you know, you know your deadline doesn't doesn't move. <laughs> so. Deadline does not move. <laughs> you can lose a fourteen page outline, and your deadline does not move. Oh God. Well, you know, ironically. Get rid of what we just said earlier about, you know, your brand and everything. After Phasma and Blackspire specifically, you have kind of established yourself as the essential queen of villains in Star Wars with, with uh, your expansion. You get raccoon uh, hands for that. Yes! Yes! Oh, man. All you audio listeners, <laughs> it was amazing. It's exactly what you think it is. Because, uh, you know, in those books, I loved how much you expanded, like, Phasma, Captain Cardinal, our, oh, our guy with his the, so target hilarious. helmet. They're, mm, it's so good. It's yeah, so if you good. like Cardinal, Target is, is re-releasing his, his Black Series Cardinal helmet in December. It's up for pre-order now. December? If only there was a major holiday where my family needed to get something for me around that time. We'll see. We'll see. Um, but I wanted to ask, you know, compared to those characters, did, did writing an Inquisitor who's kind of villain on top of villain uh, kind, of, kind of push that to the next level for you? Or was it kind of that, in that same headspace of your Phasmas, your Cardinals, that kind of stuff? Well, with any of these characters, you know, for Phasma at least, you see her at the, I don't want to say the end of her journey because I think she's alive. Like, show me a body if you disagree. I haven't seen one. Yeah. Still she fell. Oh, no. Still petitioning. We've seen people come, come back from worse. But you see her <laughs> at, at, at what appears to be the end of her journey. And then I had to, you know, re-engineer her backstory to show you how she became that person. So the same thing is true right. for Iscat, where we have a couple of pages out of uh, Charles Sewell's Darth Vader comic. And... Mm we see her make a very um, kind of unforgivable slash reprehensible choice in that comic. Mm -hmm. And so the task is to show where she began and how she became this person that's shown in the comic and how she committed that act and how, you know, the challenge is to think, what, how can I make a reader care enough to, if not forgive her for that, but still go on the journey and understand why she would make mm -hmm. that choice. So yeah, we re-engineer from the start and have to figure out, you know, what would be the first crack in her armor? How would the dark side get in? How would we show a, a good-hearted, earnest, caring person who wants to do good and be good? How could they be uh, broken and corrupted in such a way that they would choose this life? And that every step of the way you go, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? I mean, that, that's the whole, the, the beauty <laughs> the of... Face way to Mustafar. <laughs> exactly. Paved with dead people thrown out of the airlock. Yeah, and occasionally people get lit on fire. It happens to the best of us, you know? Us. I mean, it's the whole Anakin thing of, like, the reason George was like, let's watch this little boy. You know what he does. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and you I know, I have to watch um, every movie six or seven times to write the Skywalker saga. You know, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, retelling. yeah, Absolutely. Watching the Phantom Menace and the whole series mm. for Revenge of the Sith, like, six times through a row when you have a young blonde son. <laughs> Oh, my God. There are a lot of tears. Oh, it's Jeez. so heartrending. Yeah, because, I mean, authors always say, you know, that eventually some of your characters do become like your children in that way, too. And, and you, it's fun, you know, as you read Rise of the Red Blade, your care for Iskat's character definitely bleeds through. We have a and lot in common. Like... Not the evil parts, sure. but, you know, the, the unhappy yeah. child parts are very similar. Yeah, well, you know, not, not, to, not to go too, too deep into that, but in the beginning... You know, you, you have this really, really beautifully vulnerable author's note. Um, you have a trigger warning in there about suicidality, and you go to write this really nice kind of essay regarding mental health, um, which we 
Not not usual for an author's note. I haven't seen many of those like that. You've seen that a lot in Star and, Wars. No, no, and I really love that because I think it really speaks to where we are right now. And then, and I want to ask you, what role do you think that stories and universes like Star Wars play at a time when a lot of readers really might be struggling with these kind of heavy issues? I mean, we're in a, a real weird time that can draw some some parallels to the Clone Wars insofar mm-hmm. as uh, maybe people who don't have the best... Um, they're bad actors and good actors, and we don't really have control over who is in power and making all of the rules that we may or may not agree with or believe that they represent us and that mm-hmm. war kind of constantly feels there. I know the younger generations are feeling very disenfranchised and hopeless yeah. regarding their futures with in between climate change and uh, the rising cost of living and housing. Um, mm-hmm. So we have some similar feelings to, I think, what we see in the Clone Wars where you have, uh, you know, the Jedi Order has been basically these peaceful monks for thousands of years and suddenly they are thrown into the chaos of this war where they're being used as soldiers and they weren't prepared for it at all. And there are going to be people who are misused, who are betrayed, who are left behind, not through any actual act of evil, but just because of, you know, the basic incompetence of uh, some, some monks who were raised, you know, to be lights in the darkness. And then suddenly... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the is, you know that you, you can't light all of the darkness and sometimes you have yeah. your own chunk of it so there's a lot of chaos mm-hmm. here and a lot of room for storytelling and for people who slip through the cracks because um even with the best of intentions there are people who get left behind or who are not seen for who they are or who do not make the connections that can help pull them through dark times yeah and, and there is this kind of overwhelming feeling um for a lot of folks, like, I, so I'm 31, I'm like right in the millennial, like middle ground here. And it's interesting kind of seeing Gen X and Gen Z on this end being like, you know, the younger folks in my generation are like, we did the things we were, you told us to do. Yeah. And we like, took like, out we, the student loans. Yeah, exactly. We did all this. And then, and it is kind of like, no, I, I believed in the Republic. We voted for, for the things we supposed yeah. to do. And now there's an empire. Like what happened? And I think that, you know, there's a whole bunch of that within this book through Iscat's eyes. And and because of that, you know, you spend a healthy amount of time on her life as a Jedi before she dons the Inquisitor robes that grace the gorgeous cover um, so flowing in the wind. Um, so why do you think it was so important to see that part of her life through her eyes specifically? Because I feel like we've seen that through Masters and like, oh, my Padawan dies in the Clone Wars, but she is a Padawan. Like, what do you think was so important about her specific journey seeing that switch? Well, you know, I guess previous to this or in general, we see the Jedi as, as a positive force. That's all about connecting with nature and living things and helping. And we see them make some, there are some errors. And like, I think a lot of us are like, why did nobody go back and get Shmi Skywalker? Like, you know she's there. Uh, if you think you're a good person, go God. back and rescue this woman out of slavery. It's so easy. It's so but, easy. So there's yeah. moments where the Jedi, I right. think, has has confused us or let us down. Um, yep. But with Iscat, to get you to the end point from Charles Sewell's comic, we had to start, we wanted to start with a good, earnest person and see them through no fault of their own and through no direct malfeasance on the Jedi part, see them mm-hmm. disenfranchised and, and yeah. other. And so, um, you know, what occurred to me was just thinking about my own childhood as someone who 
kind of felt like an alien who didn't fit in and who had trouble making friends and didn't know what to wear, how to act, or why everything I did was annoying and got me bullied. Um, it seemed like that would be a good place to start with her because we're told that the Jedi, you know, they all start in the same circumstances. Uh, this isn't a, a, a school with the rich kids and the poor kids. You're all taken from your family and raised the same way to believe the same things. And right. in theory, you should end up with the same people. But in Iskat's case, because she feels this otherness, even amongst all of these other species, right. um, you know, it, it gives this place for the darkness to seep in. Um, it occurs to me, you know, I'm I'm a mom and we learn about childhood psychology that like during this youth, during, during, during infancy, it is absolutely crucial that infants form a connection with a caregiver that looks into their eyes from 20 inches away and gives them unconditional love and helps grow the neurons to allow them to um, process, to self-soothe, to process trauma, to grow, to feel independence. And like the Jedi don't get this. And like, it hurts no. me. They're basically in an orphanage. And I'm sure whoever is in the crash is like doing the best they can. But when you're in charge of a hundred babies, you can't make that connection. No. And so then you think, okay, well, you're going to be assigned a master that the force has uniquely connected you with. Okay. What if your master is not connected to you at all and has chosen you for the wrong reasons? And so yeah. now, you know, your safety net has also fallen out from beneath you because now you still feel even less connected than ever. And then you make some other, you know, people that you look up to and you go to them for help. And what do you get from them? Lies and platitudes. And you can sense that yeah. they are not telling you the truth and that they don't really see you. And when they do see you, they go, oh, no, no, no. Be different. Not like that. Do different. So kind of yeah. every step of the way her various, you know, the the. She's on the, the tightrope and the nets just keep disappearing that should be catching her and keeping her safe. And that, you know, I wanted to be clear that like the Jedi aren't bad. They're not trying to do a bad thing, but like people slip through the cracks in these large organizations, yeah. especially once you throw into the chaos of war where we can't worry about this one kid's mental health because that whole planet just exploded. Right. Uh, but right. she's able to fall through the cracks. And I think that that was one of the more fascinating things, especially about that beginning part, because, you know, growing up, We've, we've seen all these amazing stories of Jedi, like you say. I mean, Luke's whole thing is, I'm going to be a Jedi. He's the Jedi at the end. Oh, my God, incredible. And he's got Yoda. And then we got Obi-Wan. But then you're like, there's no way every master can be Obi-Wan or Yoda. And, and the fact that Iskak Even doesn't... Even Obi-Wan messes up a little bit. Yeah, it's true. He doesn't... He, uh, I, I forgive so much for you and just because of the way he is. <laughs> but, yeah. But, like, seeing Iskak realize that, oh, this is your chosen person, like you said, and it doesn't 100% fit, that is too bad. Because that's what the Force said. And you do such a wonderful job illustrating how the Jedi aren't this just malevolent Force and not just this pure good Force. Because I think that's easier and somewhat of a shortcut in more storytelling. And I think a lot of folks in, in the past years have kind of turned over to that other side of the Jedi are awful. They're kidnapping children, which also isn't that. But, but, I, but I wonder from, from your point of view, you know... The Jedi, as George said, are justice and light. They're the guardians of peace and justice. Do you think the Star Wars community as a whole has become as disillusioned with the Jedi as some of the characters? Do you think that do you think we're like following the new guard? Or do you think that there might be a little way just because of like the world getting a little more complex, our view of pure good and pure evil are changing? I mean, I think it's kind of like a a, a cookie recipe where no one is really exactly following the <laughs> recipe um, where it depends on which parts of the canon you're paying the most attention to, which parts really speak to sure. you. 
and you connect with versus which parts you're like, I don't really, I don't really care. Like I, I, I'll admit it. I tune out during space battles. Like when there's a whole bunch of little ships moving yep. around, it might as well be blips on a sonar screen. <laughs> it's so hard for me. So I'm yeah. just like, I trust that. Like you show me that, and then once you show, see, like, oh, in the cockpit, that's Han. There's the Falcon. Okay, I know what that is. <laughs> I know where they and are. Me with diplomacy, like you get me into the Senate chamber, and I'm like, oh god, these guys, the cows are talking again. My god. <laughs> So I think it depends on what you're paying attention to, what speaks uh -huh. to you, what speaks to your trauma, your likes, your dislikes as to mm -hmm. who you're going to side with and, and who you're going to feel empathy for. But I think the important thing to remember is that the Jedi are just people and that people mm -hmm. are not perfect. They are fallible. Yeah. Uh, they're not. And especially the Jedi during the Clone Wars, like I think I said this somewhere in the book, like when they send you, when, they, when the Jedi send a general on a mission, it's basically... Senator X said to Senator Y to tell Senator Z to tell the Chancellor to tell Senator Q that such and such is happening on this planet and they need to fix it. And then Senator Q's aide, you know, talks to talks to Palpatine's aide, and then they yeah. come to you and then they say, Oh, hey, go fix that. You know, it's it's not nobody really knows what's going on and it's all no, layered on no. who has the most money or the loudest voice in the Senate and who is or is not in power. Yep. So it's all it's all very confusing and uh, I don't think that there's any wrong or right answer. There's the things that, you know, really speak to you or ring true for you and the things that you kind of discard because they don't work for you. Definitely. But it, a thing that always gets me about Star Wars and I think I've talked about in almost all of my books is like, it's wars. It's right there in the name. It's Star Wars. Yeah. And wars mean that you've got a bunch of veterans. You've got a bunch of refugees. You've got a bunch of bad actors. You've got a bunch of rich people who get to make rules and not have to abide by them. And then you've got a bunch of PTSD in the end that we don't always acknowledge. So mm -hmm. it's it's the worst part is the main part. And it's going to it's going to be ugly. Even, you know, even after the yay, we won. You're like, great. Now you're going to go home and have a panic attack. Have fun. Back yeah, to exactly. It, it's why I, I have such a sweet spot in my heart for for Wendig's Aftermath trilogy is because it takes the victory celebration, literally one of the highest points and says, cool. Meanwhile, on Coruscant, there's a riot. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's how it starts. Meanwhile, and... Jar Jar is at the fountain. <laughs> I will. I, all of you listening, I will fight you for those Jar Jar interludes. I love They're the Jar Jar wonderful. scenes. Oh, They're God, so great. I love them. But of, but of course, within all the wars, one of the things that I think is so strong about Star Wars is the instantaneous relationships. Like, wartime is kind of that, hey, what's tomorrow going to be? Do I love you? Who's to say? Let's just, I think I'm connected with you. And your book, Inquisitor Rides the Red Blade, out now wherever books are sold, uh, does such a great job at showing Iscat working with that with Tualim, her companion, um, as they somewhat kind of mirror each other on their journey through the book um, and the exquisite SDCC exclusive cover I see behind you here. Yes. Um, my God, that Grant Griffin did an amazing job on that. Really um, But what is it about their specific relationship that excited you through the process of crafting it? Because we d don't usually get that kind of... Again, not to spoil anything, it's not really a will they, won't they? But it's also just like, you're in my life for a long time, and you know me really well, but some horrible things are happening. Like, what was it about their relationship that you loved writing? Yeah, it's it's very interesting in how um, when a writer is working in Star Wars, there are certain things that you're asked to show, and certain things that you're told to show, and certain things you're told to, you know, leave off the page or put behind a closed door, hint at. So basically anyone who's reading this book who has some very questions are like, Delilah, why didn't you do blah? It is so obvious. 
I wanted to, I wasn't allowed to. Hopefully someone else will pick up that thread one day, but like if you have a burning question or a burning annoyance about what I was or was not showing, probably wasn't my choice. Um, mm. So with them, we have the Charles Sewell comics where some certain mm -hmm. things are said. Um, but the thing we know about Inquisitors through everything we've seen of them so far, including this book, is that they they don't have friends. They're not, they don't go hang out and have popcorn night after they take out Eve Poth. You know, it, it's God, just- that'd be great works. though. It is, it is a backbiting, and when they're training together, it's not, oh, hey, buddy, that was a great parry. Good job. It's if you're having an off day, I'll cut off your hands and laugh at you for the rest of your life. Yeah. So it was really fun to kind of show. Um, I had to figure out why these two Inquisitors would have the relationship that was, you know, shown in the pages of Charles's comic um, while recognizing that, you know, I, I'm not allowed to write a Star Wars love story. <laughs> mm -hmm. book. Uh, so there's some interesting <laughs> walking. But mm -hmm. also with Tualan, you know, we wanted to show enough of his story that he made sense in context while leaving enough room that if another person was writing a book about him, they would still have a lot of fertile ground. Um, sure. So I did, you know, get to show some of, of his journey. And I also, I really enjoyed getting to decide um, how he came to live through Order 66. That was really mm -hmm. fun, was getting to write yeah. um, a unique Order 66 scene that we haven't seen from that perspective before. And it was like, it was trying to figure out, there were certain really interesting uh, challenges in this book. And one of them was, how did he live through it? Because right. everything we know so far suggests that he wouldn't. Um, mm -hmm. And it's right up there with the challenge of, okay, well, she has to fight Vader. How is she going to live through this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because how many times, like we, how many fights with Vader have we've seen where he's shown that he's pretty much indomitable? So how is yeah. it? teenager going to get out of that so that was when i remember the, the the day i figured that i was like oh thank god i think i can pull this off yeah but there are many very unique situations um in this book that had to be uh danced around because of its very unique nature and because of things that are uh part of the inquisitor experience that are being held for other media to reveal absolutely and and of course dancing around that is not just a solo activity because we here love our fantastic editor tom uh oh, tom who talked the about best. what a goat um and i love just how much he kind of shares about the editorial process um and one of the things that i personally love that he does he always shares the playlists um that he uses yeah. when he edits projects he uh, there's a rise of the red blade one folks that he did share go check that out um this is tom holler also known as darth Oh God! What is he? He's Darth. Uh, uh, Darth Internus. Uh, Internus. There Darth it is. Internus. Darth Internus on on the Twitter. That's yeah. where all kinds of stuff happens. Uh, we learn all about the interns, also that help him out uh, with all the books. Uh, Intern Lando is a very talented boy. Absolutely great for pictures as well. Um, but since Tom obviously always shows his playlist that kind of get him in the editing space, I was wondering if you had any rituals that you do when you write. Do you use playlists? Do you kind of journal as characters? And, and if so, is there anything like specific for Rise of the Red Blade that you use kind of as a tool to say, I'm sitting down, I'm writing some Miss Cat, here's how I get into it? You know, I used to rely really heavily on playlists, especially early on, because typically um, if a career writer is, is as busy as I am, they're, you know, having to mix up first drafting with, oh, well, this edit came in and I have to turn around this edit of this old sure. book in three days. You know, things are constantly happening. So I would do playlists. So Phasma and Black Spire both have playlists. Um, on Spotify, I'm Delilah S. Dawson there. I think in almost all of my Perfect. books have their own playlists going all the way back to, I think, Wicked As They Come, my first book in 2012. Oh, um, great. Which, you know, those early, like, I, I use playlists, like, 
Walmart use strip malls. Like I use them and then they're gone <laughs> and they're just trash. So like if you made me listen to that playlist, I'd be like, oh, not this old stuff. But like not at all. flagship song was um, Houdini by Free the People. Um, I think it's what it's called. But like that's Fantastic. I hear that song and I was just in there. And then after that, I think it was pretty much just the Mad Max uh, soundtrack. For oh, that. hell yes. Absolutely <laughs> was, it was. That was the Phasma thing. But this book... Um, I, I had to write it quick and fast and I, I didn't I don't think I even came up with a playlist for it. Um, but I uh, I've been getting really into Olympic lifting over the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. So I have workout yeah. playlists. So when I had to work so, when I had to fix something in the story, what I typically do is go for a long walk outside. Um, I walk like the Terminator. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, I hit 40 and suddenly if I don't walk for like five miles like the Terminator every day, I explode. So I would just put on like a workout playlist that I associate uh-huh. with like, when this is on, I am pumping iron. This is, you know, lots of EDM and stuff. And mm-hmm. then I would just take off. Um, I have a playlist called Pitter Patter that I use for workout a lot. That's based on the Letterkenny um, soundtrack for the TV show Letterkenny. Wow. Yeah. 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 So I probably use that one the most, but basically I would sit up and be like, okay, I've got to figure this out. And then I just start <laughs> walking to the, to the music and then it would kind of come to me. Um, so yeah, it's wow. Terminator walks are the way to go. Terminator walks, high EDM, and trust me, folks, if you've read the book, that makes complete sense uh, based on how Iscat, I think, works through some of her issues as well. And, you know, without giving anything away, you mentioned earlier uh, Iscat's search for her personal identity makes up a, a huge part of the book yeah. uh, within Rise of the Red Blade in a couple different ways. Um, and lately, you know, this question of personal truth and identity has been really crucial in a lot of communities that we've been seeing, especially lots of disenfranchised communities kind of fighting for the right to have identity. So is there anything about Iscat's journey that might be able to draw a parallel to those who are still kind of asking questions about where they might fit in in, in their day-to-day life? Yeah, I think, you know, most writers are, are writing about the snakes in our heads, whether or not we are aware of it. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely work through a lot of my current questions and past traumas and books, uh, depending mm-hmm. on which book and what I'm going through at the time. Um, this book, what played into it the most was that over the last couple of years, um, I've been on kind of this journey of learning. I'm, I'm not neurotypical. Mm-hmm. Um, it started with my kids getting various diagnoses. And then as you start looking into it, you realize that uh, ADHD and, and autism spectrum disorder present very different in women and that we're taught to mask in different ways. Oh, sure. And uh, I've always known I've had synesthesia. So I mm-hmm. guess from the start, I was already thrown out of there, but I have an ADHD diagnosis. I'm probably on the spectrum somewhere according to these 17 tests I've taken online and my therapist who listens to me, um, sure. which explains why, like I said at the beginning, like when I was a kid, I felt like an alien. I didn't know why yeah. I didn't fit in and why other people knew how to and why people just bullied me all the time and why mm-hmm. kids spit on me on the bus. Didn't understand any of that, um, but my yeah. life was always art. I was a visual artist, um, mm-hmm. so I was always doing some kind of art. I uh, learned how to paint murals when I was in seventh grade, and that was my first access oh, wow. to flow, where it was just like falling into the wall. So I would start painting, and like eight hours later, I'd wake up and be like, oh, oh my God, this whole room is full of artwork. Wow. And wow. Uh, it was very cool. So I got an art degree, but then I never kind of found my body of work. Like I never, I would try all mm-hmm. these different media. I would teach different media. Um, I would do, you know, one woman exhibits and I couldn't figure out my, my thing that really connected me to my body of work. And it made me so mad. And I would watch mm-hmm. the Great Expectations movie and be like, why can't I paint like that? And then I found writing yeah. when I was 31. And I was suddenly like, this is my unique, like, this is my voice. This is my art. This is my connection. This is my flow. Like, I don't, I want to do this all the time. Like this, it doesn't, yeah. it's my biggest obsession. It's my biggest compulsion. It's my biggest fixation. Like, I just love mm-hmm. writing and I get so excited about it. Like, 
I want to write on the weekends. I want to write on vacation. I want to write on the airplane. And so in writing Iscat, you know, starting her as this very confused person who's going, I think I'm great. And I think I'm doing the right thing, but nobody else gets it. Nobody wants to be my friend. What is so weird about me? Why won't anyone connect with me? And then one day she finds the thing she's good at that makes her feel alive and connected for the first time. And she's told, no, don't do that. That's bad. <laughs> so, you know, I think, I think that's a lot of the thing. A lot of people a lot of artists in their 30s and 40s are learning as they kind of get involved in certain online communities is yeah. I'm not the only person who feels this way. And maybe my brain isn't it was never broken. There was never anything wrong with me. I'm just different. And if I can find a way to turn this into my superpower instead of my liability, then no one can stop me. Like it's the best feeling yeah. with you if you're able to figure that out and and come to happy terms with it. Like I, I still have, you know, I, I still have uh, the, the negatives of it don't go away. <laughs> Sure. Um, I'm sure. still real bad at small talk and don't like making eye contact. And if the temperature is wrong, I faint. But, you know, <laughs> you still get to where you can accept things about yourself and be like, it's okay to be weird. It's okay to do weird things with my hands. Like, it's okay to have hyperfixations. And it's all yeah. okay. So, yeah, definitely Iscat was very, very personal. Yeah. And I mean, dedication to the book, too. Because I think I've talked yeah. to lots of Star Wars people who are like, yeah, I was bullied for loving Star Wars. I was a weird kid. I was into science fiction and fantasy. Nobody understood me. And it's like, we're in the same group, buddy. Yeah. I, I mean, as, as someone like, I got a theater degree. Like that was my whole life was being the Star Wars kid that was like, I'm too loud. Shut up. But what do I do? And then finding these communities has been such that thing. And, and you see so much of that in this cat. And I, I love the irony of, of her finding her flow, right? Being the thing that you can't, really do yeah, don't do that <laughs> um but what i loved about that is that obviously your, your previous novels have had have had some really thrilling action scenes you know um we love we love vimarati doing all her fun stuff obviously phasma spinning everything and swacking people great times but there's there's got to be something different about writing the ignition of a lightsaber in the book so obviously that like iscat does that a few times. Uh, so I want to ask you just personally, how thrilling was it to tackle full on just lightsaber fights with action scenes in this book? It was so cool because, yeah, in my previous works, um, I wasn't allowed to use the word lightsaber or force. Ugh, um, crime. You know, I, I think for for whatever the re the books that I have been asked to write outside of, I think, my short story with Asajj Ventress, mm -hmm. where, you know, her lightsabers aren't really they're they're taken from her. Um, but this is my first time where it went from zero to 60 from like, you can't say the word lightsaber in this whole book. You're going to say it six times a paragraph. Yeah, seriously. Then, you know, there's not a lot of synonyms for it. You've got saber, lightsaber, and blade. And that's kind of it. Yeah. Laser sword. It's like, we know. We know. Yeah. <laughs> Very fun. Um, it's also, I guess in some of the fight scenes, I didn't go for more traditional blocking, but trying to tap into, since it's from her tight third mm -hmm. person perspective her point yeah. of view of what it feels like to to fight which is more like dancing and more yes, like being part yeah. of a world when it's compared to like she went for a jab slashing from left to right <laughs> or like you know she's spinning she's yeah. flying, heads are flying chitin is burning yeah right <laughs> which is a conscious choice because like i don't i don't yeah. think she was thinking of the blocking in that mm -hmm. moment so there are moments yeah. where it focuses more on x happened to y and more on like this is what it feels like to be in flow where everything works and, yeah. and your, your mind is moving as fastly, fastly, good Lord, as, as quickly as your hands and your heart in this mm -hmm. kind of beautiful balletic movement. I think of writing and art as dancing. When it's at its yeah. best, it feels like dancing. And so yeah. I want her to feel that too. Yeah. And and I, 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 I reread a lot of Matt Stover. 
Yes! Okay, uh, that, yeah. The most poetic Star Wars we've ever gotten. Oh, he's beautiful. Um, so not only um, Revenge of the Sith and a little bit of Traitor, but also I always dip back into Heroes Die and Blade it to Shaw because he writes such beautiful violence. Oh. Yeah, oh, I love that phrase too. You know, because there is such beautiful violence the way things are choreographed and and discussed. And I mean, like even this year with um, Star Wars Visions, uh, the second season we had the the Sky Dancer episode with like the the ballet and, and the waves of everything. Like, could I always track exactly what Lim was doing? What? No, but that wasn't the point. And and I love the way Iscat experiences that. You know, you you write a lot in the book about how this. Thing happens you're within her monologue and then at the end you just get the reactions of everybody and a lot of times it's horrified but in her mind she's like what do you mean this, this was great awesome. <laughs> how could this possibly be bad see i was um my my dad was a jock and i was supposed to be born a boy and i was supposed to be an athlete so when i was born a girl who was really big into art i was basically told like no 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 don't do that <laughs> do the stories yeah. so i feel this in my bones <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, because that's what this is. You know, you're writing a character that is looking for purpose, looking for purpose, finds it in a way that is not typical. And I think that's why this book is so unique. And I think it's going to hit so many people in this way, because I think this journey is almost not as unique. I think a lot of folks go through this idea of I'm trying to find my purpose. Maybe I've found it. Why is it wrong? Who are my people? And that builds some of that disillusionment or resentment, especially when you dabble in a few microaggressions that are, are consistently without the book. Um, but, but as we, as we wrap up and kind of, again, get folks back to reading the book as someone who has now tackled a number of legendary characters from Phasma to a character that you can go meet. And I have in Vimarati. And oh, now it's, she's also every Vi that you meet. They're all the same, of course, because Vi is real, but they're all so good. They're all so good. My my partner loves uh, saying, hey, magpie, whenever he goes somewhere to test. And it always turns around because of your book. It's the best. Um, yeah, I sent, I sent a bunch of when when they um, I, I met several friends of Vi kind of early on. Mm-hmm. So I got to go sure. to the uh, the opening of Galaxy's Edge East. And, oh, and right. uh, I met I also spoke to some friends of Vi and Galaxy's Edge West. I ended up sending them, you know, some co- some signed copies of the book so that they could. Mm-hmm spread them around because they all wanted to read it i love that she they're they're so great all all, all the friends of vi all the friends of vi are so talented yes can't wait to meet some friends of his cat in the future who's to say that no, one <laughs> but i'm down for Sorry it about because... your skin in the florida heat good luck <laughs> oh, my dear Ooh, okay so maybe not maybe not maybe some inside ones but all these characters that you write seem to have carved out their, their own legacy within canon. I mean, you have literally Cardinal's helmet in your office. Like, is, no. Iscat is, is, is one of a kind. You know, Phasma has her, her people, and they all have their, their legacies, their fans, their stories. So out of all these, what do you hope that your legacy as creator and, and storyteller of all these people will be in the history of Star Wars and people look back at your work? I mean, I think so far it's giving... Armitage Hucks and Ice Blue Couch is probably my my biggest accomplishment. Um, no notes. No <laughs> notes. <laughs> oh, no, funny. If you get real about it, what you just want is to make people feel and to touch them and have them make memories around it because that's what the best media does. Is it just makes yeah. a, little, a home in your heart and it, it stays there. And that's the, the best gift. Like I was... I was a real lonely, bullied kid. Books were my friends. I would much rather be yeah. in the corner with Watership Down than over on the playground talking to other children. Um, yeah. And as adults, books are like that too. Like I, 
back in, God, I guess 1999, I read Outlander and I have my original copy from 1999. It's been like wow. taped up and it says in the yeah. first page, this is my personal copy. If you don't return it, I'll kill you. Um, yeah. And like, I need that on a stamp <laughs> just to put in like emboss them. No, that, that would finally work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like those are the books. I mean, like, here's the look. This is my this is my yeah. original Tail Chaser song that I bought, you know, like in B. Dalton wow. in, in like yeah. the, the 90s or whatever, like. This is yeah. these are the books that stick with us that that mean mm-hmm. something to us. So the thought that that could could live with somebody is is a really big deal. And getting to make these original characters, you know, it's the first time I wrote Han Solo. Mm-hmm. Star Wars books get a lot of editing. Not only do you have an mm-hmm. editor, but your editor has a head editor and an assistant, and then there's everybody in story group, and then like there's 17 people in the comics arguing whether the Quat Drive Yards were closed that year. So, <laughs> right, you get a lot of editing. Um, yeah. Especially, like, there's a whole document that tells you how to write Yoda speak because Yoda, the way Yoda talks is so complicated. The first time I wrote Han Solo, there were no notes because he's been talking in my head since I was a child. Like, I know what Han Solo would say because he lives there. So no one had to edit that because I know what he'd say. Wow, that's great. Yeah. You know, the thought that a character could live on in somebody like that um, is just, it's just, it's a gift that that people read and that we can have that connection with them. And I hope it'll make somebody feel less alone because that's what books have always done for me. Yeah. And I, and I I mean, that at least from our point of view, like seeing this community grow the last few years, reading your work, that does seem to be a consistent thing is that, you know, you write these books, these characters, like Phasma especially was such a great like intro. Cause that's when I got into you. That's when I met my community was right around the time Phasma came out and everyone was saying like, I do see this. She does bad things, but my, your mind kind of changes a little bit. And then same with Vi and Cardinal, like this guy is bad, but I get it. And with Iscat already with some of the advanced reviews and stuff that we've seen with people and the reception has already been people being like, Iscat is a character that I think I see a lot of myself in. And I think a lot of people are going to learn a lot about themselves as you read Iscat be like, I agree with her. Is that concerning? I'm not sure, but I think it's going to be really fun to see, you know, all these characters you write are really going to help people figure out who they are, what they love, and who knows, maybe someday someone will be writing Iscat and they're not going to get notes because they're going to know exactly how she oh, sounds in their head. Oh, that's 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 awesome. I love that in Star Wars we kind of trade characters like that that you never know yeah. who's going to be picking up the next thread or what they might be doing. It's really yeah. cool. It's like dropping off your kid at someone's house. It's like, all right, don't embarrass me. Have fun. <laughs> I better be able to trust you. Don't feed Cardinal too much sugar. He'll get hyper. Oh my god, he absolutely would. God, I miss that what man. No, are you kidding? <laughs> He'd be like forty and being like, I don't know about this. Oh my god, <laughs> just start I'm gonna jump up and down. <laughs> oh man. well, as we as we kind of wrap up here, obviously, Rise of the Red Blade is out. This has been such a build up. I'm so thrilled for people to read it. You, like you said, you have a super busy year coming up, and all the years I'm sure are going to be wild going forward. But um, I want to give you a moment now. Let folks know what's coming out that they could look forward to um, that you can talk about. I'm sure there's a lot of things that are in there. Um, and then when can, where can people find you and kind of keep track of all this stuff? Sure. So I've got, I've got four books out this year. Um, I guess as of today, two are out. The first one is Disney Mirrorverse Pure of Heart, which is based on the Disney Mirrorverse mobile game. So that's a world in which all of the Disney characters can interact um, in kind of a RPG dungeon party style. So like Snow White has a gigantic axe on the cover that she kills stuff it's with. So rad. Um, she can hang out with, she hangs out with Stitch, Sully, Hades, Tiana, Rapunzel. So those characters are interacting together in a unique world. 
Um, it's very fun. If you've ever wanted your Disney to be a little bit more um, fantastical, snarky, and murderous, I got you. <laughs> yes. Um, and then, yeah, Rises Out Today, there are four different copies of it. So there's the usual mm -hmm. one. There's a Barnes & Noble exclusive edition that you can order online that comes with a poster. There is the San Diego Comic-Con exclusive edition that you have to be a Comic-Con with, but it oh. comes with a special cover and a pen. It's my first Star Wars pen. Super excited. <gasps> oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah, it's a double-bladed red lightsaber. What a surprise. Yes. And then Inkstone, <laughs> Inkstone Books has a uh, very special hand-signed, hand-numbered edition with red edges that is uh, stunning. Mm -hmm. So um, yes. Yeah. So then in September, I have a fun YA magical romance that has nothing to do with any of this. It's called Midnight at the Houdini, and it is uh, based around Sleep No More and The Tempest by Shakespeare. <gasps> so if you like um, romantic teenagers in a world with no aliens, we gotcha. And then in October, I have a horror novella called Bloom that is kind of a girl, girl, cottagecore Hannibal horror story. Um, so that's wow. this year all over the place. Um, you can always find me online at DelilahSDawson.com. And then I am also DelilahSDawson at Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky. I have a Facebook author page, but I don't go go there because they make it really hard to do anything. But if you ever yeah. actually like talk to me, Twitter is your best place. I will answer most questions asked in good faith. Super happy to interact over there. I like to um, answer like ungoogleable writing or publishing or IP questions because mm -hmm. there's so many questions that are hard to find the answers to online. And I got a lot of help from authors and editors on Twitter when I was coming up. So I'm over there for you. But yes, Delilah is awesome pretty much everywhere. Awesome. Well, everyone go there now. Of course, after you finish the book, I keep reminding you. Finish yes, the book. Read the book. <laughs> Read the book. Um, and of course, let us know what you think. Let Delilah know what you think. Um, and well, then no, tell Correction. Only let me know what you think that if it's good stuff. Because I'll Great try. point. I will Great cry. point. Yeah. Be nice, everybody. And then give <laughs> the book to five of your closest friends. Spread the word of yeah. Iskatakaris. Um, and learn a little about yourself. So, uh, uh, thank you so much. Just to take ADHD and autism tests online. Because, oh boy, we got a lot to learn. You know what? Maybe that's the year. Maybe that's 2023. We're all going to figure out what we've needed to know for the last 30 years. It's freeing, I tell you. Didn't even need the dark side for it. Not this time. Well, everyone, thank you so much uh, for listening. Uh, enjoy the show. Enjoy the book. Enjoy the show. Enjoy everything. Enjoy everything. Enjoy, enjoy life. And don't go outside because it's burning. Yeah, don't, we'll don't see you next time. Time. Thank you. There is no hatred. There is joy. There is no division. There is union. There is no apathy. There is passion. There is no gatekeeping. There is community. This is the Utini Star Wars Fan Code. Embrace it, live by it, and above all, trust in the living force. Join the Utini community and surround yourself with like-minded fans at utini.com. And remember, the force will be with you, always.